0: Welcome to Goodspeed's brand new podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, on the artistic staff here at Goodspeed, and I'm joined by my incredible colleague, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate, Anika Chapin. Hi, Anika.
1: Hi. How are you? I'm very good. Any day that I get to talk about musical theater is a good day.
0: I completely agree. And for me, any day I get to talk about musicals with you is a great day.
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, The feeling's mutual, and uh, I think that's pretty much every day, because we talk about musical theaters all the time.
0: Since we love musicals so much, we wanted to take this opportunity to dive deep into some of our favorite musicals and start to understand why they work, how they work, and what it is about them that makes them classics.
1: And for our first episode, we're going to dive into one of the great classics, Rodgers and Hammerstein's epic South Pacific, which opened on Broadway in 1949 in a production directed by Joshua Logan, who also wrote the book with Oscar Hammerstein, and went on to win a Pulitzer Prize among many other awards.
0: And since we're producing South Pacific later this season, we thought it was the perfect show to launch this series. And before we dive deep, uh, fair warning that there will be spoilers, as we'll be discussing the entirety of South Pacific, and we wanted to give you a brief refresher on what happens in South Pacific. South Pacific begins at the home of Emile DeBec, a wealthy French plantation owner who's entertaining Ensign Nellie Forbush, an American nurse who was stationed on the island during World War II. From the get-go, it is clear that Emile and Nelly are enchanted with each other and are absolutely falling in love. When Nellie realizes that she's about to be late for her next shift, we transition to the naval base where we meet a rousing chorus of sea bees led by the mischievous Luther Billis, who is competing with Bloody Mary, a local Tonkinese woman, selling knickknacks and goods to the sailors, who are restless and caught in the middle ground of the war. That begins to change with the arrival of the handsome and brooding Joe Cable, a Marine lieutenant who has been charged with a mission of spying on the Japanese fleet from another nearby island. While Cable has come to recruit DeBeck to help him navigate his former home island, Billis sees the opportunity to befriend Cable and take him to Bally High, Bloody Mary's home island which is off limits to the sailors. As a first step in recruiting DeBeck, the naval officers question Nellie on Emil's past, which causes her to doubt her feelings for him. But after a brief encounter with Emil, she becomes more sure than ever that she loves him. Meanwhile, Cable and Billis go to Bally High, where Bloody Mary takes Cable to meet her daughter, Leot, and the two quickly fall for each other. The act comes to a close when Emil throws a party for Nellie to meet all his friends, where she discovers that he has two young, mixed-race children from his former wife. Distraught at the discovery of his mixed-race children, Nellie runs away. Act 2 opens at the Thanksgiving show that Nellie coordinates for the troops. While the troops enjoy the performance, Bloody Mary brings Liot to Cable and pressures Cable into marrying Liot and taking her back to America with him. Cable, fearful of the prejudice they would face in order to be together, says no. Emil makes one last appeal to Nellie, which she rejects, and he then decides to help Cable with his mission. The mission happens entirely offstage, but Billis' ill-timed antics unintentionally distract the Japanese forces, which allow Emile and Cable to arrive on the island undetected and report on the enemy's position. About two weeks have passed when Emile reports back to the officers that Cable has died. Through the radio, we hear planes overhead and Emile's transmission is cut short. With Emile's fate grim and the two children potentially orphaned, Nellie overcomes her internalized racism in order to care for the children. In the final scene, Nellie's having breakfast with them when suddenly Emile appears in the doorway. He joins them at the table and Emil and Nellie grab hands, symbolically affirming their love for each other and the life ahead of them. And that brings us to a segment we're calling Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we're going to encapsulate this show into one central idea. And we think the central idea of South Pacific is worlds colliding.
1: Yes, certainly worlds colliding is the driving engine and the spine of the show, if you want to call it that, the sort of uh, driving force on which all the action is built. But I would say if there is a single message or a single theme that really echoes through all of South Pacific and one that makes it really remarkable for its time, it's really about racism and confronting your own internalized prejudices and the prejudices of the society you grew up with, really looking at what you might have never questioned before and deciding for yourself whether you think this is something that you want to live your life by or not. That is something that echoes through the show. It is a message that was very important to the writers. It's a message that's very important to the characters. And uh, both of our protagonists, really, uh, Nellie Forbush and Joe Cable, have to go through this process of, of looking at themselves, looking at the world, looking at asking themselves questions they never asked before to see if that's who they want to be as a person.
0: Absolutely. I think it's impossible to argue with all of the books that have been written about the creation of the show, um, all the anecdotal evidence that we have of uh, rehearsals and its reception by the general public. Uh, it was in, very important to Oscar Hammerstein in particular uh, that the main takeaway of the show was we, you need to confront your internalized racism. We'll certainly talk about that more as we get to how it was received, um, some very famous stories that, co- that um, correspond with that evidence.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that should take us into a little story about how this show came to be in the first place.
0: Yeah, so Anika, tell us a little bit the general history. What, what was the genesis of South Pacific?
1: All right, well, South Pacific is an adapted show. It's based on a series of short stories written by James A. Mishner called Tales of the South Pacific, which only came out a few years before South Pacific the musical did. So to start there, James A. Mishner was a writer from Pennsylvania who enlisted in the Navy, and he had been given the title and task of a naval historian, which was kind of a cushy gig from what it sounds like. He basically had to travel around the South <laughs> Pacific. <laughs> and, and write about it he wrote about the history of the navy in the area so um uh, kind of funny story about that is apparently he was given that gig because uh the navy mistook him for the son of a famous admiral who had a similar last name so they wanted to give him this this good gig but he actually wasn't related to that guy at all so while he was traveling around the South Pacific, he started to collect the stories of locals and soldiers and people who lived there, expats, uh, just for himself. And he turned them into a series of short stories that was published as Tales of the South Pacific in 1947. And that book won the Pulitzer Prize. It was a big success.
0: Meanwhile, in Rogers and Hammerstein land, Uh, they were coming off of their very first flop as a writing team, Allegro. Uh, It was a very experimental uh, musical that continued to experiment with the form in the way that they had done so successfully with Oklahoma and with Carousel, both of which were um, huge hits at the time, Oklahoma obviously being what, what is considered the first book musical with fully integrated acting, singing, and dancing everything forwarding the plot. Uh, and Carousel, then taking that another step further and confronting a lot of darker realities, uh, much more adult themes than um, are present in Oklahoma. So after the, the flop that was Allegro, the team was really jonesing for a good project. And there are lots of stories about the things they were considering at the time. Um, and there's a lot of debate as to uh Who actually came up with the idea for South Pacific?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different versions of the story. And I just also want to jump in and say, too, when we're talking about all these three shows that uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein had already produced, Oklahoma, which was their first major show, was in 1943. And then Tales of the South Pacific was published in 1947. So when you think about how long it takes for a musical to get to Broadway to be written now, this is a crazy short amount of time for these shows to be written. That's just They're like
0: thing. they're popping out like a show every other year, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and these are amazing classic shows. So it just makes me want to take a nap. I just feel like I needed to share that with our I, podcast. I
0: have so many feelings on that. But I completely yeah. agree. Completely agree.
1: So yes. So they were looking for something that was going to be a hit for them. And after Allegro, which was an original story, they wanted to go back to something that was more of an adaptation. This is a little bit safer ground for them. So in these many versions of who brought the book to their attention, the leading contender seems to be Joshua Logan who's a a wonderful director that they knew who brought it to them. And they really responded to it and decided to adapt mostly two of the stories. There's quite a few in the collection um, as their next show. So once they started writing, it actually went a little bit slower than Hammerstein was used to. He was having real trouble because he didn't understand the military. He had no experience in the military. He wasn't a veteran himself. He just didn't feel like he knew the world or the lingo And so he was having a real problem getting the story told when he felt like he had this roadblock. So the solution they found to that was that Joshua Logan himself was a veteran who understood the military world very well. So he came on board as a co-book writer with Hammerstein to help him with some of that world. And once that happened, it came together very quickly. And there's actually some very funny stories about just how quickly it came together, including one uh, about the song, Happy Talk. Apparently, Oscar Hammerstein had written the lyrics to Happy Talk because usually with Rodgers and Hammerstein, Oscar Hammerstein would write the lyrics first and then Richard Rodgers would write the melody after. Um, So he sent the lyrics to Happy Talk to Richard Rodgers by messenger. And by the time he called Richard Rodgers to confirm that the lyrics had gotten to Richard Rodgers... Rogers had already written the whole song of Happy Talk in about 20 minutes. So there are some great stories like that. It, it really just came to life as soon as that team came together.
0: So one of the reasons Rogers credits that he was able to write some songs so quickly was that he would spend a ton of time as Hammerstein was writing and rewriting and uh, doing his famous Hammerstein um, economy of words with lyrics, um, he would continue to develop musical themes that he thought lived for the show. And he would just kind of riff on those ideas at the piano or in his mind even. And so then when he got lyrics from Hammerstein, he was quickly able to turn those lyrics and match them to a theme that he had been thinking about. Again, all kind of coming out of their belief that structure and structure could govern excellent musical theater.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Rodgers and Hammerstein focused on two stories from Mishner's collection. The primary story, the main love interest of Nellie and DeBeck, came from a story called Our Heroine. The second one is from a story called Fodala, which is about Bloody Mary, Liat, and Lieutenant Cable. Now, unusually for a show at the time, both of these romances... The main one and the secondary one were serious love stories. Usually you would have something more like Oklahoma where you have Laurie and Curly who are the serious love interests and then you have Will Parker and Ado Annie who are the kind of comedy duo. So because these two stories were both serious, they decided to take Luther Billis who was another character from the stories and really make him more prominent because he was a comedic character so then you would get a nice balance and you wouldn't just have this very serious heavy hitting show. And interestingly enough, when they were first writing, they included two other characters from the stories in more prominent roles. Bill Harbison, who is an officer, was a competitor for Nellie's affections with Emile de Beck. And a character named Dinah was a love interest for Luther Billis. But as they were writing, they realized that those characters were not helpful and actually kind of complicated the action. So although both characters remain in the show, they're both very small parts, as opposed to when you read the stories, they feature much more prominently.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting you talk, about, you talk about that because going back and reading the script, there are such hints that still remain in the show that like everyone's got a crush on Nellie. Like everyone seems to want Nellie's affection, um, yeah. which not only because she is a, a wonderful character and an optimist and all the things that make her so charming, but it just there are hints of that all over the script, which I find fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's also very interesting because uh, they really made sure that none of the characters in the show felt just like a nameless, faceless chorus, except for maybe the soldiers feel a little bit less defined. But all of the nurses have names. A lot of the characters have names. Um, so you really, they really populated the world with the sense that there are other stories happening at the same time that you just aren't getting on stage.
0: And I think it's a credit to Mishner and the way that he wrote in Tales of the South Pacific, because I always get, because of the origin story, I'm always like, wait, is it, is it fiction or is it nonfiction? And it's actually fiction, obviously based somewhat on real characters and real people he met, but he did such a wonderful job portraying them in the books that they had such a wealth of information to create real people on stage.
1: So this was also a show that was very influenced by its original casting. To play Nellie Forbush, Rodgers and Hammerstein got an actress who had almost played Laurie in their Oklahoma, Mary Martin.
0: I didn't know I she heard. had almost played Laurie.
1: Yeah, isn't that funny?
0: That's insane. It's How different would that show be?
1: Yeah, isn't that wild?
0: Wow, um, okay, interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, and to play Emile Beck, they got the very handsome opera singer Ezio Pinza. So these two really shaped a lot of what the show became because Pinza was, had such a strong, powerful voice. Mary Martin asked Rogers that he please not write any songs for them to be singing together at the same time because she didn't, even though she has obviously a very great voice, it was not an opera bass, which is a real powerhouse, especially when you think that this era really didn't have microphones. So she didn't want right. to have to compete with that voice actively. And so Rogers pretty much did this. Um, most of the time, De DeBeck and Nellie Florbush, even though they are the primary love duo, don't sing any duets in which they're actually singing in harmony, except for there's a little bit. He did cheat a little bit, but, uh, their first love song together is called Twin Soliloquies, which we'll look at at just a little, in just a little bit. The other thing that Mary Martin did, which really left her mark on the show was suggest that there was a number that she sang while taking a shower on stage, which of course ended up being, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, uh, which was a phenomenon. People were just blown away by the idea that she was taking a shower on stage. And of course, I think it's been the the bane of many uh, subsequent productions' existence. Because <laughs> it's very hard to do, especially since it's one thing to do it when you don't have a mic on, but in the world of body mics, when you have a water source that's supposed to be dumping water on your star's head while she's singing. Oh, my God. I don't even know. It's a recipe
0: for disaster, especially now in the world with wigs. And, you know, I mean, it's a nightmare. (laughs) nightmare. Coming from a director, it's a nightmare.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. So... I guess, thank you, question mark, to uh, Mary Martin (laughs) for that. But yeah, but it's a nice illustration of of what really happens a lot of the times with all these classic shows, which is that often a lot of decisions are made based on the people in the room with the very first one. So uh, luckily in this case, we had Ezio Pinza and Mary Martin, who were both really wonderful collaborators on this process.
0: So as it was with any new Rodgers and Hammerstein musical at this point, the... Advanced buzz about South Pacific was astronomical. Uh, there are news reports and stories about the the line to get tickets. It's one of the first times that um, scalpers appeared on Broadway, um, with some tickets going for hundreds of dollars. Which in 1949, hundreds of dollars is, I mean, it's like Hamilton prices. So when it opened on Broadway on April 7th of 1949 at the Majestic Theater, now home to the Phantom of the Opera, uh, it got absolute rave reviews. Um, Definitely some of the best reviews of their career together as uh, collaborators. And uh, an interesting quote from the New York Times from Brooks Atkinson, quote, no one will be surprised this morning to read that Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein II, and Joshua Logan have written a magnificent musical drama. He goes on to say, if the country still has the taste to appreciate a masterly love song, some enchanted evening ought to become reasonably immortal. Which launched, of course, a whole other barrage of ticket sales. It, it ended up running on Broadway for 1,925 performances, uh, which was the, at the time the second longest running musical um, of all time, second only to Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, so it
1: was, real,
0: Raj, it was a mega hit. Roger, a mega hit. And Roger Hammer signed, I mean, ruling, ruling Broadway at this point between the successes of Oklahoma, Carousel, now South Pacific. Uh, they're, they're really on a hot streak, you know, uh, the s- sadness of Allegro aside, which um, perhaps in another podcast we can dive into Allegro, which Ooh, is, has lots of interesting things about it, uh, uh, but definitely a chestnut that is not as um, produced nearly as often as their other mega hits. So at the fourth annual Tony Awards, before there were even nominations uh, for all the various categories, Rogers and Hammerstein And South Pacific won nine awards, uh, which at the time there were only 11 categories it was even eligible for. So nine awards, a staggering sweep, um, kind of unparalleled uh, up to, uh, I mean, absolutely unparalleled up to that time and almost unparalleled uh, today. It's still the only musical to have won all the acting categories. Uh, And, It's the first musical to win what is called the Big Six at the Tony Awards, which are Best Musical, Best Book, Best Score, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Uh, Only three other shows have done that in the history of Broadway, uh, and that's Sweeney Todd, Hairspray, and uh, most recently The Band's Visit. So really, it's setting an incredibly high bar uh, that, that we can hardly even think of happening today um and you know it not and probably not just because it was a weak season on Broadway but really celebrating uh the achievement of the creation of this classic
1: yeah it was really a cultural phenomenon so some interesting just fun little facts about the original
0: production of South Pacific um you know as the show ran for uh, you know 1900 performances uh some amazingly famous people uh were in the show but before they were famous uh and certainly in the original broadway production uh and even some international um productions too that i think Anika will talk about but uh shirley jones was in the ensemble of uh of South Pacific at one point, Cloris Leachman was a Nellie replacement before she was Cloris Leachman. And the famous Tony Award winning director, Gene Sachs, uh, was the professor at one point in the original production. So a lot of, one of those special shows that, uh, that the people who were in it also elevated to another level as well.
1: Absolutely. And across the pond, one of the CBs was a young actor who was known as Sean Connery. Perhaps that sounds familiar. So uh, I am desperately, desperately envious of anybody in the audience who got to see a young Sean Connery wearing sailor pants. But you know what? We can dream.
0: Listen, we can dream. So South Pacific also has a massively successful tour uh, that goes to 118 cities over a period of five years. So again, it is not an understatement to say it was something of a sensation at the time.
1: Yeah, it really was a huge, huge hit. It was adapted into a film version in 1958, also directed by Joshua Logan, who had directed the Broadway production and been the co-book writer with Oscar Hammerstein. And um, it was colorful, shall we say. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Boo. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, no, color. so what Anika's referring to, if you've never seen the, the first film adaptation of South Pacific, uh, they experimented with uh, a new sort of a technology that they could overlay colors on top of the image they were, uh, they were filming to try and underscore an emotional mood that they uh, wanted the audience to feel. I think it's fair to say that that film was less than successful.
1: So in addition to the film version, there was a major revival in 1967, which starred Florence Henderson as Nellie, and then a tour that starred Robert Goulet and Barbara Eden from 1986 to 1988. Uh, In 2001, which was the centenary of Richard Rodgers' birth, ABC aired a television version starring Glenn Close as Nellie and Harry Connick Jr. as Cable, and then in 2008, Lincoln Center Theater did a major revival of the show, directed by Bartlett Sher and starring Kelly O'Hara and Paulo Jat. And it was glorious. It was so beautiful. And it was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and it won seven, including Best Revival and uh, the special award, Near Perfect Revival of My Heart.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked a lot in our preparation for this podcast about how amazing that revival was. And on a personal note, it was one of those productions that changed my life. I I saw a bootleg of it um, because I was not living in New York at the time. And I watched that bootleg and I said to myself, actually, that's what I want to do. It's what really drove me to be a director of musical theater and to really invested in it and to say oh that's the kind of work i want to do it's a really extraordinary revival that was um captured all with almost the entire original cast um for pbs um and if you ever get a chance to watch it or if you want an introduction to south pacific it is the i think it's hard it's pretty close to perfect
1: <laughs> it really is it really is just across the board it's it's exceptional and it had a full orchestra which is a very rare thing To see nowadays, yeah, yeah, Yeah. with with that score, especially, it was very, very appreciated.
0: And the Robert Russell Bennett orchestrations, which we'll get into in the deep dive, but wow,
1: yeah.
0: And with that, that brings us to the segment we're calling Into the Words, obviously, a play on one of our favorite musicals, Into the Woods, where we're going to deep dive into the text and some specific songs or scenes that we really think deserve the full exploration. So I'm going to turn it over to the brilliant Anika, who uh, is going to take us take us into the words.
1: Oh, thanks. I'm blushing by a podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, so basically what we're going to do here is listen to a song from South Pacific and really listen closely to how the music and the lyrics and the underscoring all of this uh, tells the story that Rodgers and Hammerstein want to be telling at this time. So what we're going to look at right now is a song called "Twin Soliloquies. And I'm going to look at the original Broadway cast recording. That's the one that I'm going to be using. So if you want to, pause the podcast right here. Go listen to that song in its entirety. We'll be playing little snippets of it. But if you want a refresher on what the whole song sounds like, just take a second. We'll be right here waiting when, we, when you come back. Okay? All right. For those of you who have now paused and come back, or if you're like, I know that song, we're good, uh, let's dive in. So Twin Soliloquies is actually the fourth song in South Pacific, but it's very early in the beginning because one of those songs is, I'm counting the overture, the glorious overture of South Pacific, which obviously gives you a sort of musical overview of all the songs you're gonna hear. So that doesn't quite count as a song within the action of the show. Then we have Dites Moi, which is a little tiny ditty, that is sung by Emile's two children. So that's barely a song. So after dites Moi, we have Emile and Nellie coming up the hill at his beautiful house on this island in the South Pacific. And Nellie will sing Cockeyed Optimist before this, but then we have this song, Twin Soliloquies. So it's very early in the show. Although Musical Theater Convention talks about having an opening number where you establish the world and meet the people, Rogers and Hammerstein, as we said, really almost never have opening numbers in that style. Their their opening numbers are really just integrated into the story. They're just very sometimes small personal moments. Uh, And this is a similar thing. So you have Nellie and Emile, who are not a conventional romantic couple. They're not the couple you would expect. She's younger. She's from a different world than him. She's from Little Rock. She's optimistic. He's older. He's French. He's very sophisticated. He's very mature. He's lived on this island as a, as a planter. He's exotic. These are different things. So Rodgers and Hammerstein have set themselves a sort of interesting task here in that you are not meeting these two characters when they are meeting each other. We do not get to see the beginning of their love story. We are meeting them after they have known each other and gone on a date or two. Pretty much. This is sort of the first time that they have spent time together alone, but we're hitting the end of it. They've already spent a few hours with each other at this point. So when we are meeting them, we are seeing them already having some feelings about each other, but we are just along for the ride. So we're not seeing what exactly caused them to be drawn to each other in the first place, which is a tricky place to start with your main romantic couple. So they're on this date, they're on the patio they're getting to know each other. Nellie sings "Cockeyed Optimist, which is a really great character number to illustrate who she is. And she's this sunny, optimistic person. Um, she's sort of making fun of herself as a, as a hick, as, as she says, a sort of country bumpkin who doesn't, isn't worldly like he is. Um, it's very self-conscious. It's very sweet. It's very charming. And then we have this song. So this is an interesting song, too, because it's both parts of this duo, but they're not singing together, which, as you will remember, was what Mary Martin asked of Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein, that they don't sing together. So as a solution to that, they've given them this song where it is two of them having these soliloquies, these interior thoughts that, that we are hearing, but they are not hearing each other, which is very very unusual for the beginning of the show very unusual for a scene with these two people usually they would just have a a more conventional duet so let's dive in i'm just going to start playing it and uh give you a little bit of the chunk of the beginning also a shout out to rob russell bennett who did the original orchestrations for this so we can't obviously talk about this without talking about the brilliance of these orchestrations and and what the instrumentation is
0: Truly a masterclass of orchestration, almost always from him too, um, brilliantly leaving out the melody line often in the same range as the singer, so the singer's voice pushed forward. He's a brilliant, brilliant orchestrator.
1: Yeah, really just fantastic top of his field, all time great. Okay, I'm stopping here. That first melody will have some lines spoken over it. But then what I really wanted to highlight there is that beautiful plucking of the harp and that sweeping strings. They're really illustrating what this setting is. They're on this beautiful patio. Uh, They will talk about the beauty of the flowers. A lot of times in the sets, you'll see these tropical flowers that are sort of draped over the set here. Um, you can hear the breeze there. You can hear in that sweeping strings back and forth the, the warm breeze and the ocean waves crashing again and that, that very gentle rhythm. And then that plucking harp blunk, 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 mimics what those flowers probably look like. So even without any lyrics, they're telling us just how overwhelming the setting is, especially for Nellie, who's new to this world, and she's about to sing about what her feelings are in this section.
0: Wonder how I'd feel, living on a hillside, looking on an ocean, and still.
1: So then we're getting her inner thoughts. What would it be like to live in this place for longer, for for all time, to be with this man, to have this life. And I love how Beautiful and Still, at the end of that, mirrors the saying, Beautiful and Still. You can hear the music go down and just kind of lie flat. You can see what she's seeing there in the music. It's really brilliant. Let's hear from DeBeck.
0: This is what I need. This is what I've longed for. Someone young and smiling. Up
1: my hill. So there we have the other side of it. Emile is a lot more sure than Nellie. She's wondering, what would it be like to do this? But for him, it's a lot clearer. This is what I need. This is what I've longed for. He knows already that Nellie is what he's been looking for. And just as Nelly's goes beautiful and still and goes down at the end of her phrase, his someone young and smiling climbing up my hill and you can hear the music go up in that moment climbing up the hill and then hit that beautiful note for him it's both more joyous and optimistic but also it's mirroring the climbing up of the hill we
0: are not alike probably i'd bore him he's a cultured frenchman i'm a little him
1: so we get Nellie with a new thought. It's not the same melody that she first sang. So it's a different thing. She's wondering at the beginning, what would it be like to be here? Now she's thinking, I don't belong with him. He's got lots of options. He's very smart and and cultured. I'm a little hick, as she said. And Mary Martin gives it that wonderful vocal sort of texture there
0: i mean that vibrato is killer and such old school broadway to have that kind of control over your voice it's absolutely it's top top of she sounds amazing
1: it's really great great especially since in that moment she's calling herself a little hick she's being self-deprecating and funny we love her and we've already heard her sing cockeyed optimist so we already know that this is kind of where she retreats to when she's feeling a little bit insecure. She's making fun of herself as being this kind of country girl. So having that kind of trilling that she does is even greater there because it's a, little, it's a little riff, almost, on what she's saying. It's an unusual, not traditionally beautiful thing there. It's a little bit of sort of character texture, I'd say.
0: Younger men than I, officers and doctors probably pursue
1: so then we get emile's version of this which is the same thought that nelly is having but in a different way nelly's thinking i'm just a little hick he's this cultured frenchman i'm not good enough for him he's thinking she's young and beautiful there's all these men around i don't have a chance right and you can tell that for him just like in the first verse that they had this is a little bit more serious. He's going down to, she could have her pick. She's bringing it, he's bringing the melody down there. And you can just kind of hear that he's, this is a sort of sad thought for him. As opposed to her, she's a little bit less, uh, the stakes are a little less high for her, you can hear.
0: wonder why I feel jittery and jumpy. I am like a schoolgirl waiting for a dance. Can I ask her now? I'm like a schoolboy. What will be your answer? Do I have a
1: chance? Oh, I love this part so much. So you can hear the rhythm speed up and it really starts to feel like a, a heartbeat when you're when you're nervous about something. Your heart is beating so much. And she says, wonder why I feel jittery and jumpy. And we have just a really gorgeous, gorgeous Rogers thing here. The music is, is illustrating that so perfectly. Jittery and jumpy. It's going all over the place. You can, you can feel the puppet on the string there that she's talking about, basically. You can hear it in the melody, plus this, this fast heartbeat of someone just so nervous. And as she said, she's like a schoolgirl waiting for a dance. And this a little bit slows down, a little bit lyrical for her there. And then, of course, Emile has the same thought. He's jittery and jumpy. I am like a schoolboy. Uh, what will be her answer? Do I have a chance? And again, whereas Nellie's is a little bit more casual, Emile knows exactly what he wants, even here. He's thinking, I- I'm so nervous. I'm so jumpy. I'm like a schoolboy. What will be her answer? Do I have a chance? Right? What is the question he's going to ask? I think we know a little bit what that is, and we're about to find out in the next song, but he already is thinking of something much more serious. It's also really brilliant what they've done here too, because, and you can hear in that, do I have a chance, it really slows down and spreads out. You can feel the weight of this question for him and how much it matters to him. Um, But the other thing that Rodgers and Hammerstein have done so brilliantly here is he's older, He's more mature, he's more formal, he's more sophisticated, he's more established. Also, it's someone who is played by an opera singer and opera singers have a different style of performance which tends to be a bit stiffer. So already we have these characters that we're just meeting who are not a conventional love pairing you know some a more kind of conventional show might have her paired with someone like joe cable who's the same age from the same background they're both young and handsome you know they they kind of fit together in a way that debeck and nelly don't do not on the surface so rogers and hammerstein are actually in this music showing us that under the facade of the sophisticated together guy Emile is just a a romantic, just as much as Nellie is. And of course they're doing the thing which is a brilliant musical theater trick, which is to signal that two characters are meant to be together because their music is the same. Even though they're thinking their own things, they each have their own soliloquy going on, they're singing the same melodies and having the same thoughts at the same time. So they're subtly signaling to us as the audience that these two are on the same page. And with Emile, we get to see something that, uh, is so charming this 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 man, this elegant man, thinking of himself as a schoolboy, super eager to ask her this question we 're just they 're undercutting the formality of the character in a way that makes us really fall in love with him and is very important for where they 're going to go because we need to love him because he 's about to to sing some enchanted evening to her we need to be on board for them to be together, and we really already are here so let 's just play the rest of the song and you can hear. All right, so now you have something really extraordinary, which is that the lyrics are all finished for the song, and all of the storytelling weight is in this music, which you are hearing entirely in the clear. There's no lines spoken on top of it, and there's really barely any action. Emil is pouring Nelly some cognac and giving it to her. But the music is so full and lush here. And what you're hearing is that sort of melody that no 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 that uncertain melody that they were both singing. but it's it's getting swept up in this beautiful build. it's getting bigger, it goes a little bit more minor key, a little bit more uncertain. and then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to this moment. So what you might expect if you were just hearing that song alone, if you were just hearing that music, would be that a character maybe who has been spending an entire show looking for El Dorado has just summited the hill and is looking at this glorious golden city out before him or something like that, of that magnitude. It's such a large scale of emotional music there. And you have that beautiful, all those brass instruments are taking in that kind of glorious... Uh, trumpeting at the bottom of, of feeling there. You just really get that sense that something magnificent has just happened. It's built to this climax, this huge emotional climax. So what you might think is that it's something that is bigger than life, really. And what you're watching is two people clink glasses full of cognac and then drink the cognac. And that's it. But what Rogers and Hammerstein are telling us by juxtaposing those two things are that these two characters have actually had the biggest thing of all happen to them, which is that in this moment that we are watching, but we are not hearing them talk about, we're just hearing it in this music, we have seen them and heard them and experienced the moment in which these two characters have fallen in love with each other. So it's a really extraordinary illustration of what music does in a musical. It really transmits the emotional message. So what you have at the beginning of this song is these two people who are not a conventional match, that have already met each other, that are feeling things for each other slightly but tentatively. And at the end of this song, we know so much more about them, and we know that they are alike in ways that they don't know even about each other yet, which is that they're both ultimately sort of sunny romantic optimists, um, even though their facades seem very different. And we know that they are now in love. We know that they've found this sort of metaphorical city of gold, which is that they have had the most extraordinary thing happen to them. And it's all in this music. It's all in this music. So although it's not a conventional opening number or early number in a musical, uh, it has done what we needed to do in so many ways. And it's just a a beautiful illustration of Rodgers and Hammerstein's genius and how they were able to use lyrics and music to tell the story, not always at the same time, not always in conventional ways. And sometimes the music takes over the storytelling as it does right here. So that is twin soliloquies from South Pacific.
0: Brilliant. And that brings us to a segment we're calling How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? where we're going to investigate some of the things that might not have aged as well uh, in the years since the show premiered and some of the controversies surrounding it.
1: How do you solve a problem like Maria?
0: Annika, I think it's fair to say that one of the biggest things that hasn't aged well with South Pacific is the character of Bloody Mary.
1: Well, that's something that certainly is... Uh, criticism leveled at this show, and it's it's interesting because even though the entire point of this show, when Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote it, was to give the audience the message that racism is bad, and you have to look at your own racism, and examine it really, uh, there is a sense today that South Pacific is problematic because it itself is racist, um, which is something that mostly centers around this character of Bloody Mary. So some of those criticisms about the show itself being racist are a little bit strange to me. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say something like, you can't do it. Nellie Forbush is racist. She can't be with Emil because he has Polynesian children. To which I say, yeah, sure. That's, that's the end of the first act. That's actually the source of the dramatic uh, tension. But at the end of the second act, she has realized that that is foolish and wasteful and not correct, and that she wants to be with Emil, and whatever his background is, whatever race his children are, doesn't matter at all. So the show actually comes back from that point. It doesn't stay there, and that is not the message of the show. Same with Joe Cable, who falls in love with Liat, and then doesn't marry her because he's he's afraid to bring her back home, because he's afraid of what his, his society will say. But then before he goes off on the mission with Emil de Beck, he says, you know what? When I come back, I'm going to live here and be with Liat because I love her and I'm going to marry her. So he realizes as well that racism is something that has been imposed upon him by his society, that it isn't actually something that is an inborn human thought and it isn't something that is valuable. It's actually something that's immensely hurtful to people and societies. So that criticism is a little bit peculiar for me. So we'll talk a little bit about you've got to be carefully taught in a second. But the Bloody Mary one is a little bit more subtle. So Bloody Mary and her daughter Liat are both uh, local Tonkinese, which is now Vietnamese, uh, characters. And Bloody Mary speaks in a sort of pidgin English because she's obviously English is not her first language. Um, Leot doesn't speak English at all. She speaks French. Um and the criticisms of these characters are that Bloody Mary is sort of the, the stereotypical Asian, quote-unquote, dragon lady. She's fearsome. She's sort of morally questionable. She she does whatever she can. Some people feel that she sort of pimps Liat out uh, to get her to marry Joe Cable, which I don't think is quite as, I don't think it's quite that simple. And Liat is the sort of a stereotype of the Asian exotic flower. She doesn't really speak. She can't communicate with Cable in his own language at all. Um, and she's basically, he falls in love with her immediately, has sex with her immediately. She sort of fulfills this role of this like beautiful, pure thing that doesn't have much agency of her own. So I don't know. To that, I will say I think that There have been many bad productions of South Pacific that will push Bloody Mary into a sort of stereotype. But if you look at the script, it's a lot more complex than that. Bloody Mary has a very, very shaded character. She is opportunistic, sure, but she also sees an opportunity in these soldiers who are trying to buy all these things that she can take advantage of because they will buy from her for these prices. She's trying to make a living for herself and her daughter and what she does with leot is also pretty subtle it's not quite the same as pimping her out they live in a world where the locals are basically used as sexual fodder for these french planters who live on the island so bloody mary makes it clear at some point that if cable does not marry leot Liat will have to marry an older French planter who's kind of gross, because that's what this world is right now. There are not that many options for these people. So Bloody Mary sees a road ahead for her daughter with Cable that is far preferable to what she will have to do if she doesn't go with Cable, which is be with someone else who is a lot less attractive, a lot less kind, a lot less of a good option, a lot less of an equal. Um so that's what i say to that criticism and it's it's a conversation i've had a lot because this is something that people are concerned with when you're doing the show i actually got into a fight with a friend at a dinner party once about whether south pacific was racist or racist over this very issue um if i had a
0: nickel for every time (laughs) i've gotten into a fight at a dinner party over a musical i (laughs) would be able to afford the life I live working in theater.
1: <laughs> I know. See, so anyone who wants to invite us to dinners, you should know that, that we will, we will throw down about musical theater if We're necessary. We're fascinating guests.
0: We really are. We're fascinating
1: are. guests. We will eventually talk about other things, but we might, we might have to defend South Pacific for a while there. Um, so yeah, so that's what I would say about Bloody Mary is that if you have a good director uh, and you look at the script, there's really a lot of shading and a lot of nuance there that, that it goes well beyond the stereotypes. Of course, there are some problematic things that, that we just don't consider to be acceptable right in this day and age, such as the dialect that the show is written in for her. It's very pigeon and it's not something that we, we do today, really.
0: And one of the things that I found so particularly successful with the 2008 Lincoln Center revival was the characterization of Bloody Mary in that production was very nuanced and complex and brilliantly done by Loretta Ablaseyer, who will actually be reprising her role uh, at Goodspeed when we produce it this year. Um, And she couldn't be a lovelier person on a personal note, but such a talented and gifted actress that... Everything that Bloody Mary does feels rooted in an economic reality for her. And the the love that she has for her daughter overpowers everything. She wants to make sure her daughter's taken care of and she's not going to back down from that.
1: When it comes to Liat, that's actually somewhere that I think the criticism is, is fair. We expect our female supporting characters, especially ones who are used in sort of romantic and sexual ways, to, to have at least a little bit more fully fleshed out characters so we understand who they are as, as a person rather than just uh, to fulfill a sort of plot role, which it feels like Liat does a little bit. However, this was written in 1949, and that, that was a different time, so we have different standards now, and I think you can still perform the show uh, with that in mind, giving Liat as much character as you can possibly find for her there. I think a good director and a good actress will be able to really create more of a character than, than might be there in the, in the text to make it feel like she's as fleshed out as some of the other characters. But of course, it's impossible to talk about South Pacific and racism without talking about you've got to be carefully taught, which is a song in the second act that Lieutenant Cable sings, in which he basically says that racism is not inherent, it's not born in you, and it's not quote-unquote natural. It's something that society makes you feel because everybody else in society feels that way, but it's really not good, and it's not something that humans are born with. And this song, of course, was wildly controversial in its original run and beyond. So, Michael, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So uh, to set up the context of the story at this point, Cable has told Leot that he can't marry her. And um, then again, like right after that, um, Emil and Nelly have their confrontation scene where Nelly says, and I'm taking this from the licensing script, quote, I can't help it. It isn't as if I could give you a good reason. There is no reason. This is personal. This is something that is born in me. And Emil very simply replies, I do not believe this is born in you. And then Nelly leaves, her words piercing cable um, as he overhears the conversation. And he launches into this song that is quite up-tempo when dealing with such a Controversial issue as racism and kind of unthinkable now in so many ways.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting melody and rhythm, and it is oddly upbeat for such a serious and dark message. I think part of that is probably because Cable is sick at the time, he has malaria, and this is such a moment of. I think he's probably filled with adrenaline and illness and he's just sent out away and he's so angry and upset that it comes out in this sort of more up tempo almost way than you might expect. I think it also might be Rodgers and Hammerstein a little bit cleverly doing a little sucker punch to the audience. I think you don't expect this message to come in this package so they're not wagging their finger at you and saying, this is a very momentous thing that you have to sit down and learn. This is a lesson you have to learn. Um, they're not lecturing you. They're really delivering this through this character um, in this unusual way. So you're, you have to listen actively because it doesn't fit neatly into any category. I don't know. I've thought a lot about this. It's, a, it's an unusual package for this song to come in so it's a really interesting one to think about why they would have done it that way
0: right and I think there's something to be said for attacking the issue that they knew was going to really rattle audiences in the exact opposite way that you would expect for it to be delivered I think you know sometimes we talk about um in rehearsals um with acting a lot that it's helpful to play the opposite um and and not think you know don't sink into the tears, fight the tears. If you're drunk, you don't play drunk, you play sober. Um and all those kinds of things. Sometimes it helps it helps actually get to a larger truth or get that message even more ingrained in the audience's mind. Uh, Yeah. So it's really it's a it's it's a very interesting interesting choice on their part.
1: Yeah. But but truly, I mean when you think about the fact that this is 1949. And this is a song that says that racism is is unnatural. That is a very, very bold message for that time.
0: Especially for a Broadway musical to be confronting that. And it's a full 18 years before interracial marriage is even legal in this country.
1: Yeah. It's really early to be delivering this message in such a huge public manner. It's very, very bold. And we have to give Rogers and Hammerstein credit to that. This was Im- immensely important to them that, that the message of the show got across. And they needed their audience to know it, even if their audience, they knew their audience was not going to necessarily be on their side.
0: So Hammerstein even received a letter from a lieutenant commander in the Navy um, who demanded that the number be cut. I'm reading this from the South Pacific Companion book. Um Quote, Hammerstein was stunned when he received a letter in Boston from a lieutenant commander in the Navy who demanded the number be cut. Hammerstein wrote back a steely reply. Please forgive me for not agreeing with you. I am most anxious to make the point not only that prejudice exists and is a problem, but that its birth lies in teaching and not in the belief that there are biological, physiological, and mental differences between the races. I wish it were true that all these things were accepted by the public. You say, quote, the theme is wearing thin, end quote, but in spite of this, I see progress being made only very slowly, end quote. So when the show goes on tour uh, to Georgia, two state legislators um, objected to the song, stating that though South Pacific was a fine piece of entertainment, that song quote, contained an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow, end quote. We've always been fighting with Russia. That's the story here. Okay? I know, right? That's the story. And explained, quote, intermarriage produces half-breeds, and half-breeds are not conducive to the higher le- type of society. In the South, we have pure bloodlines, and we intend to keep it that way, end quote. They stated that they plan to introduce legislation to outlaw such communist-inspired works, uh, I, incredible and incredible in a, an awful way. And those, those state legislators are Senator John D. Shepard and representative David C. Jones. I, I hope their descendants are embarrassed that they're, they're, yeah. like, I, that's, I, I can't even, it's crazy to think that it was this controversial at the time, but I, you know, it, yeah. also, it also shows that we have come so far and yet we still have so far to go and why the show is still relevant today.
1: Absolutely. And it's why it sometimes uh, makes me yell at people at dinner parties when South Pacific is swept away as being racist or not acceptable today because it's really remarkable that in 1949, they built this show, this piece of massive entertainment when they wanted a hit, so... They could have gone in a much more safe and conventional path, but they didn't. They chose to make a show whose very message was that racism is bad and that you have to do the personal work to dismantle that racism, both in yourself and in your, in your world, because love is much more important than anything that stands in its way. And racism in all its forms stands in its way. So that is really ultimately what Rodgers and Hammerstein were up to. And they they made sure that when the theaters were performing South Pacific, that they were uh, integrated. They had to fight some battles on that. It was They really put their money where their mouth was with this. And it was a risk for two producers who wanted to have another uh, big hit. But of course it was a big hit. And who knows how many people learned that message from the show. You can't forget that musical theater is popular entertainment and sometimes we tend to not think of popular entertainment carrying messages of such depth but if you learn these lessons in shows that you love in these stories they really go deep into your heart so I think Rodgers and Hammerstein probably were responsible for many people re-examining their own uh, upbringings and their own worlds and hopefully realizing that racism is a terrible terrible thing and Uh, should be discouraged and dismantled whenever you find it.
0: So that brings us to the segment where we're going to talk about some of our favorite things, from raindrops on roses to whiskers on kittens. What are the things that we personally love about South Pacific? These are a
1: few of my favorite things.
0: So, Anika, why don't you give us your first one?
1: Number one for me is Younger Than Springtime. It is... In a score full of gems, and there are so many gems, it's hard to choose. For me, it's just always been one of my most favorite romantic songs. I think it is glorious. And it's actually very funny. They have songs that Hammerstein and Rodgers had written for that spot before Younger Than Springtime, which are not nearly as good. And actually, one of them was called Suddenly Lucky, which ended up being Getting to Know You. It's the same melody. So we're very happy that they kept... uh, forging on and ended up with what is, I think, exactly the right song for that moment, just so laden with sensuality and, and romance and beauty, and I just love it so much.
0: Right. I can, it's so funny to think that the light and was going to accompany the scene that preceded that precedes Younger Than Springtime.
1: And something else I love about Younger Than Springtime is there's actually a few cases of actors who play Lieutenant Cable marrying their Leots. Um, it happened in the, the British production had a lead out cable mix. There's, there's another one. And then the, the, in the recent tour. So I think that really speaks to the romance of that song, because clearly even if you're actors and you're playing parts, you can't have someone sing younger than springtime at you eight shows a week and not fall in love with them. And uh, you can't sing it at someone without falling in love with them. So it's clearly got some romantic magic there.
0: I can personally attest to this because I fell in love with Matthew Morrison when he was shirtless singing that song.
1: <laughs> See, so
0: I, I'm personal. I feel personally victimized by that statement.
1: It's just a, it's just a love potion in a song.
0: <laughs> so my number one, along same lines as Annika, I think the score of South Pacific is so incredible. Hit after hit after hit top drawer amazing musical theater songs back to back to back to back to back i think there are very few musicals that can claim their score is as strong as south pacific in terms of some enchanted evening cockeyed optimist bloody mary there's nothing like a dame Bally high i'm gonna watch that man right out of my hair wonderful guy it just it goes on younger than springtime this nearly was mine i just honey bun there are so many that's I think I named 10 that I think a lot of musicals a lot of musicals that we produce today are lucky if they have 10 songs that are even usable and I mean I don't think I don't think I can name another show that has so many incredible incredible songs I mean obviously some of the greats do but the this is to me an an incredible achievement on on the team's part
1: yeah it's a it's a really stellar score it's there's really not a a dud in this entire score.
0: There really isn't. There's just not a dud and not a lot of other shows can
1: claim that. Yeah. hmm Okay, for number two for me, I think it's going to be the character of Luther Billis. He's such a fun character and he's such a sweetheart. I think actually, this is a really interesting show. This could be a whole other podcast, but uh, looking at masculinity in this show versus femininity is really interesting because you have this kind of hyper-masculine world of all these soldiers, but at the same time, all of these men... Are really nuanced and sensitive and uh, a lot more interesting rich characters than you might expect for a man at that time but Luther Billis especially he's so charming he's such a scamp he's such a mess Uh, he's kind of a unique comedic character that you just end up really loving and Thank God he's in the show, because he really does end up being sort of the the heart of the show in many ways. Because also, Roger Hammerstein wrote these characters that are tough to love at some point, you know? Nellie is tough to love when she runs away from Emile, saying that he has Polynesian kids and she can't handle it. But you always have Luther Billis, who pretty much across the board is is just the best. So yay, Luther Billis.
0: A completely lovable
1: goon. Yes,
0: So my number two is Hammerstein's commitment to the idea of continuous action in a musical. He really wanted to prove that we shouldn't have to black out the lights, change the scenery, and bring the lights back up for a scene transition to happen, which was very much the common practice at the time. He really felt like you could use um, in-one scenes and slow fades and a much more cinematic way of going about doing musical theater, which now is uh standard practice we we would criticize the show if it suddenly had to go to black to change the scene and then lights are back up he even writes it into the libretto and in the book the great american book musical by denny martin flynn he says quote hammerstein had decided that the modern american musical should flow no more blackouts with the audience sitting in the dark as the stagehands changed the scenery and the orchestra replayed a tune no more drops coming in just to cover a major scene change with a supporting actor in one doing a song dance comic bit or crossover so you don't see a lot of that in south pacific and it's written into the show that so he doesn't doesn't have to do that
1: number 3 for me is something that i think really shines a light on adaptation and good choices that are made by people when you're when you're adapting source material so one of the things that i learned during the research for this podcast which i thought was sort of hilarious was that while in the show, Emile de Beck had one Polynesian wife by whom he has two children, Emile de Beck in the stories has eight children by four different wives. And they actually, I, I misspoke. They weren't wives. They were just women he had affairs with. Wow. Yeah. So I think credit- De Beck to- got
0: game. Emile got game.
1: <laughs> yeah. De Beck got game um i think credit to rogers and hammerstein and joshua logan of course who's the co-book writer uh to change that because i i think that scene would be very different if emile de beck instead of saying these are my two children by my one ex-wife he was like these are my eight children
0: by I mean, clearly, four
1: other people
0: clearly the seeds he's planting on his plantation aren't the only strong seeds
1: Oh, it's, his- a, <laughs> it's a fertile ground I also think it would be very hard to have Nelly be like, whoa, eight, eight. They stole that concept
0: for sound of music. They're like, we can't, uh, we can't do that until later.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Maybe they did.
0: Oh God. I mean, obviously it's seven in that case, but still that's hilarious. Yeah.
1: And just by, just by one, but yeah. So, so in this case, I think we got to give it to good change Rogers and Hammerstein. (laughs) Good (laughs) change.
0: Number three is also a very analytical one. You can kind of tell that I, I love the deep dive text part of this, um, but the use of de at the top of the show, which is absolutely putting on display what uh, the show is about from the get-go, but in such an unexpected way, and you don't even really think about it because it's in French. So if you translate it to English, it roughly translates to this. Tell me why life is beautiful. Tell me why life is cheerful. Tell me why, dear lady, is it because you love me? What an incredible Easter egg. If you know French, that obviously you know that from the get-go, but I think it's fair to say that a large portion of the American population doesn't. But Oscar Hammerstein laying out from the get-go what the show is going to be about which is we talk about all the time in musicals that if you're not being your authentic self as a show right from the get-go it's not the right opening number and what a genius untraditional way to to start a show
1: and then you know i just got to add a little special 3.5 here um to the concept of sean connery's butt in sailor pants i gotta just bring it back we we love it we love it We love to to see it i wish there's photo documentation but it must have been a beautiful thing
0: i wish he were able to participate in fleet week
1: oh that'd be great we'll leave
0: it on that we'll leave it on that
1: Um, tip of the sailor hat to sean connery
0: and that brings us to our final segment why it works so annika after this entire deep dive with south pacific why does south pacific work why is it the classic that it is
1: I think South Pacific works for a lot of reasons. It's a beautifully structured musical with a near-perfect score full of gorgeous, gorgeous melodies. But it also blends comedy and tragedy in a way that really allows its message of examining your own racial biases to an audience that might not be expecting it. It tells a gorgeous story that you engage with, but it also really makes you think about your own life. And I don't think you can ask for more in a show.
0: Yeah, I think they do a masterful job at capturing your heart um, through the score, through the specificity of the characters, and the gorgeous music that they wrote to accompany it. That's almost unparalleled in the canon. Because of the strength of all of those elements, their theme resonates in exactly the way that it, they want it to. Well, that that wraps up our deep dive on South Pacific. Uh, we're so happy that you joined us and join us for our second episode where we'll be discussing America's favorite orphan, Annie.
1: Yep, and a homegrown Goodspeed original, so.
0: We thought it was yeah. the, ne- the, the next perfect show to start to look at. Nope.
1: Yes, not, not I, to mention I played Annie when I was nine, so very close. And to I made it
0: out of being a childhood actor um, and never being an Annie, though it helps that I'm a boy.
1: <laughs> Although a natural redhead, so. Although a natural redhead. Balance is out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.
1: Bye everyone.
0: This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time.